everybody. I'm Pastor Robin, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's prepare our hearts for what we're about to hear. Momentum is about movement. It's taking a step into godly purpose, investing ourselves into the kingdom, taking the momentary to eternity. It's something to be gained. It's a turning motion to shift, but always shifting forward. It's transforming. Our story is unfolding into a new yet familiar adventure. It's like holding a memento while recognizing the hand of the artist in all the new things in unlikely places. Saying what God's done before will happen again, but it won't look like what we're used to. It's a surprising plan only God could create. It feels like revival. It feels like anticipation. And it looks like His invitation. And we accept. So let us hang on with holy expectation and know that God is calling us to greater things. We just have to say yes. Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So good to be back with you. And again, you might be in Bowmanville or Pickering or Port Perry at Ajax online somewhere all around the world or in Canada, no matter who you are, where you're coming from. So glad you're joining us and welcome again to the book of Acts. Uh, what we're about to dive in today, one of my favorite passages in the book of Acts and I would say significant, important, clarifying, especially for us as a local church in the GTA. Okay, let me set the scene like this. It's been 50 years, give or take, since everything really began. 50 years earlier, Jesus had been born. Heaven moved into the neighborhood. God became flesh. And that night, that first Christmas evening, the angels chant, the angels song, gave a hint of what was, of course, to come. Peace between God and an angry and a lost and an enslaved and hostile and separated human family. They, of course, chanted or sung probably better than any choir in history. And if you know the Christmas story, you'll know this verse well. Luke 2, 14. Glory to God in the highest. Heaven on earth. Peace to those whom his favor rests. So Jesus, Son of God, Jesus Messiah, Jesus anointed one, God in flesh grew up. He preaches with power. He healed the sick cast out demons, forgave sin. And interestingly, if you slow down and just read the gospel accounts, Jesus gave hope to rich people. And Jesus gave hope to poor people. And Jesus gave hope to religious people. And Jesus showed up and gave hope to, to a thief and to sex trade workers and politicians and housewives and lepers. The list went on and on and on and on and on. Every act was an act of peace. All the acts of freedom, all the acts that would find, of course, coming meaning in the cross event. Jesus is sudden, for them at least, murder or execution on a cross. He's dead. All hope seems lost. Peace has been broken. And then three days later, he rises from the dead. And by that one act, <clears throat> all he taught about himself, all he taught about the Father, all the stuff about eternity, heaven, hell, freedom from sin, death, Satan, it's all affirmed as true. And of course, his last words rock the known world and have been changing the world ever since. Matthew 28, 19, therefore go and make disciples of all ethno groups, all nations, all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Well, 
50 years later, give or take, more and more and more and more people are meeting Jesus as Savior and Lord. Thousands upon thousands of lives have already been transformed by Jesus. And the pattern of wildly diverse groups of people being brought together by Jesus keeps happening. Just like Jesus did it, now his people are doing it. And of course, through Jesus, we see the Father fully by the Holy Spirit. Now, this experience of like wild diversity coming together in and through Jesus is seen, I would say, most vividly next. So Paul and Silas now bring the good news to a town called Philippi in Macedonia. And the formation of this church, like I've already said, is not only amazing to read about and witness, it has so much not only to teach us, but uh, invite us into in 2024. So our, our journey today begins on a Saturday morning. Sabbath, as the Jews, of course, would call it. It's in Acts 16, 13. So on the Sabbath, we went outside the city, the city gate, that is, to the river, and we expected to find a place of prayer. Now, you might read that and go, blah, 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 boring place of prayer. They're just praying there. Well, no, 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 actually, a place of prayer. What does that mean? Why does it matter? Well, when there was Jewish communities and there wasn't enough Jewish men to start a synagogue, by the way, the rule was you needed 10 men to start a Jewish synagogue, a small Jewish community would establish a place of prayer to the true living God. These gatherings would be made up of whatever men and women who are Jewish, but also all non-Jewish people who either had converted to the Jewish faith and or are checking it out. So, like I've shared week in and week out, Paul and Silas always start with those that have the most in common, the most bridges, the most of a shared worldview. And of course, that's why Paul and Silas always go to their to the fellow Jewish community. So Paul and Silas go to find where the place of prayer is in Philippi because obviously there's not enough Jews to start a formal synagogue. Now as they do, it says in verse 13, they sat down and began to speak to a woman who had, uh, to the women that had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia. She's a dealer in purple from the city of Thyatira who was a worshiper of God. So Lydia, it would seem, is actually not Jewish. She's a convert to the Jewish faith. She's a dealer in purple. Now, again, let me just sort of help this translate to 2024. She's an incredibly a strong, entrepreneurial, wealthy woman. So in our language, she basically would own a Gucci shop or Louis Vuitton or Versace or, or, or her kids, I guarantee, would be wearing probably Air Jordan 2 OGs. Like, it's money, money, not just money. And in this moment, interestingly, this uh, very wealthy uh, entrepreneurial uh, woman encounters the fulfillment of the Jewish faith that she's embraced as a non-Jew. She suddenly realizes that Jesus from Nazareth is the Messiah and the Son of God. Now, this next little section really matters for all of us. How did she understand who Jesus was? Watch this. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Never forget this. Lydia was not more open than someone beside her. She was not more intellectual. It's not because she had more travel or spoke multiple languages. It always takes God to open our hearts to his gospel. We can't get through or by our own sin, our deadness, our spiritual bondness, unless he cuts through all of this. And the results, of course, are always amazing, but here even more intriguing. It says in verse 15, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her house. So not just her, 
She doesn't just become a follower of Jesus. Everyone who works for her and also all those who are related to her all, becoming, all become followers of Jesus. So this is pretty incredible. Time passes. The church is gathering in the place of prayer. It also starts meeting in Lydia's house, which I guarantee was a very beautiful home. It's another Saturday. We're on our way to the same place of prayer. And suddenly, almost unexpectedly, the next major turf war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness takes place as people are walking to go to church. Verse 16, once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. So this woman is demonized. By the way, this is not fake. This is not some fortune teller who's putting on a show. This poor woman is filled and owned by the demonic. And this helps us sort of understand the area. And you're like, what does it have to do with the geography of the place? Well, if you read this in the original language, this can be translated as python spirit or spirit of divination, one who can tell the future via witchcraft. Now, python would make sense. Why? Well, just around the corner from Philippi is one of the most famous people in ancient Greco-Roman, the Greco-Roman world, the prophetess of Delphi. And she supposedly was inspired by the god Apollo who defeated a dragon, Python. And her and those who worked with her used pythons and magical rituals just down the road to tell the future. Again, she was probably the most famous pagan prophetess in the Greco-Roman world. And people would come all from all over the known world to consult her about the future. So this slave girl or woman is connected to the very source of dark power in the region. Verse 16, she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Now, let's just slow down and let's pause. I always need to remind us as we're reading this quickly, this is a real person. This is a real story. This poor girl is in slavery in multiple terrible ways. Not, as, not only is she owned by men that use her, also she is used by the demonic. And her gift is not a gift at all. She's a slave to an unholy false spirit. And again, with this case, this is not an act. She's not a fraud. She's possessed by a living thing, an ancient darkness, which would take over her mouth and mind. So Paul and Silas are walking by. The python-like fortune-telling spirit in her sees the spirit of Jesus in them and cries out, trying to confuse and trying to confront them. Her so-called gift was nothing but a living hell, used and abused by human and satanic masters. There's no out for this young woman. She's owned by hell. She's owned by these older men. And she would be owned until she dies. But that's not the end of the story. Just like Jesus had done, now Jesus by his spirit does the same thing through those who represent him. Now, here's when things get really weird. Verse 17. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way you should be saved. Now, don't misread that. That's not the girl speaking. That's the demon in her speaking. Let me read it again. These men are, the servants of the Most High, are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. Now, you should be going, hold on, hold on, hold on, time out. Are you confused? Because I was confused for years. Why in the world is the kingdom of darkness affirming who Paul and Silas and others are and even saying you should listen to them? These guys know God. You can get saved through them. This is the brilliance of evil. Watch this. It's the phrase, most high God. 
Now, to a Jewish mind, and also, of course, to the Judeo-Christian mind, when we hear Most High God, we immediately go, right, the God of the Bible, El Elyon, who's found Yahweh, right, found through Jesus by the Spirit. But actually, remember, this is a non-Jewish area. Non-Jewish people would hear these shouts and actually would interpret them differently. See, the divine name being used by the demon through that girl's mouth is generic. It's like when we say in our culture, God, and then everyone fills in the blank of what they think God is. So each person hearing this demon crying out about them would fill in the identity of the God according to their own views. So she's telling the truth in a way that undercuts the truth. And of course, this irritates Paul. One scholar summarizes it like this. There are many highest gods. The title, this actual title, had been given to Zeus and Isis, the mother goddess of the kingdom of Lydia in Asia, and Baal. So a pagan here, walking by, would understand, the, understand this term, Most High God, to whatever deity he or she considered supreme. So everyone would hear this cry, fill in the blank, and go, actually, I already know one of those highest gods. I already serve Zeus, or I already connected to Isis, or I already worship Baal, or, 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 or. In other words, notice this. The Spirit is actually neutering the gospel by making it compromised and so generic, no one hears the truth. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Well, finally, Paul became so annoyed, he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left the woman. In that moment, freedom is given unexpectedly to this slave. No more nightmares, nightmares, no more spiritual ownership, no more perpetual darkness, no more haunting, no more unholy things speaking out of her mouth, no unholy thing taking over her mind. I wonder if tears came. I wonder if she got really afraid. I wonder, as the idea of freedom dawns, if she was excited or terrified. But as usual, as we keep seeing in the scriptures and many of us have experienced, when Jesus shows up and does amazing things to set people free, most people are not excited. When the owners, verse 19, realized their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the Roman authorities. So no more money, no more uh, ability to manipulate or control this young woman. And so these slavers, that's what they are, by the way, these evil men choose to hijack the justice system to get their revenge. Now, don't forget, this is very important. Paul and Silas and others are Roman citizens. And you're not allowed to be punished without a trial. So no punishment should be given. Now, interestingly, hold on to this. Paul does not bring up he's a Roman citizen at this moment, though he should have and could have. Now, Philippi at this time is a Roman colony. It's run by magistrates. It's not against the law at this moment to speak about Jesus, but there is one thing right across the Roman Empire that had to be preserved order and peace. That is one of the highest values of any Roman area. And if you violate them, you're going to get in trouble. Well, verse 22, the crowd joined in against the attack of Paul and Silas, against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Okay, the rods thing matter. And let me, just a little history here for all of us. Magistrates had assistants, and these assistants used to carry around a bundle of rods that were bound together with like strings or, or leather, and there was an axe in the middle of it to symbolize that the government had the right to deal in corporal punishment. 
So these beatings would happen when the magistrate's assistants would take out one of these rods and beat them. Now, that's bad. <laughs> and they're being publicly humiliated. And they're naked in public. Just think about that. And as we're going to see, they're left with open, bleeding wounds. Verse 23, after they had been severely flogged, which, if, you know, I'm sitting here in a really nice place. You're sitting in a very nice place listening to this probably. You can just say that so quickly. This is brutal. They are naked and they're severely flogged. Then it says they're thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. So let me just slow down and do this again. So they're in public and they're stripped naked in front of everyone. Then they're beaten and flogged. Then they're thrown into a maximum security prison scenario. And the inner cell, by the way, was reserved for the worst type of criminals, murderous, rapists, and insurrectionists. So placing them in the most dangerous and worst conditions is another way to humiliate them. And it doesn't stop there. They're put in stocks, which is a form of torture. And I don't know if you've ever even thought about being put in stocks, but like, if you have to go to the bathroom, you just have to go to the bathroom on yourself. If you've got to itch, you, like, it's bad. Now watch this. Despite the injustice, despite the humiliation, despite the real physical, like, bad pain, despite this incredibly unjust assault for A, just being Christians, and B, setting a woman free, they should, of course, at this moment, Paul and Silas, have, should have been bitter, angry, depressed. Where is God? Why is this happening? I hate the Romans even more. I just help someone at a spiritual bondage, and this is what I get for my act of mercy. What do we find? This is what we find. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Would you be singing Amazing Grace, Joy to the World, Savior King? He gives and takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord? I actually don't think I would be. So in the middle of like prolonged torture, a totally unjust, dark, no way out scenario, they break out in song. Interesting. We begin to see singing is a form of prayer. And they understand something that many of us who have done church for a very long time still do not fully yet get. Singing about God and singing to God is a discipline that brings hope in hopeless times. We talk about this all the time here at Sanctus, that worship is a guaranteed place of encounter. Jesus says, we're two or three in my name, I'm with them. God inhabits the praises of his people. I mean, this, you could read this so quickly and miss the revolutionary power of this genuine, this genuine no way out moment. I, I love when one person summarized it like this. I, I beg your attention for this, please. Christians today, this person writes, who have not won the battle with bitterness over misfortune that they have faced should look at the prescription hinted at by Paul by praying and singing. Okay, I'm just going to stop. Have you not won the battle with bitterness over misfortune? Is this you as a Christian? He writes, if we are hit by a painful or humiliating blow, we can plan revenge, give in to self-pity, 
immerse ourselves in an attempt to get out of the problem. Now, the last option might be appropriate. We still would carry an unhealed wound, though, and we may eventually act in an unchristian way. So, he writes, we must discipline ourselves to let the eternal truths of God impact the situation so that the sting of the pain is removed. With that perspective, we can react positively to the crisis. Singing along with prayer helps us give birth to that perspective. Okay, I just want to stop again. I'm going to go off my notes for a second. Are you a Christian that has not won the battle with bitterness over misfortune? Are you planning revenge, self-pity? Are you trying to get out without God's perspective? Like, there's a lot of us here. <laughs> there's a lot of us here. Here's, here's what we begin to glean. Prayer and musical worship brings us into the very presence of God. Worship reminds us that we're not alone. Worship is beyond emotion. Worship brings us to the very reason why we exist, to actually encounter God, know God. And I love this line from the old, the old uh, confessions. And to enjoy Him forever. It's not just some theological idea. It's a person. We're connecting with Him and there's more. Worship moves us from sin. In the middle of injustice, all this wrong and worship, interestingly, in the same space, they still submit. And then interestingly, in this case, God intervenes in a very dramatic way. Verse 26, suddenly, unexpectedly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prisons were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open. Everyone's chains got loose. The jailer woke up. When he saw the prison doors were open, he, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself, commit suicide, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Okay, so the jailer knows Roman law. There's a good chance he's actually a former Roman soldier or officer. He knows, according to Roman law, the Code of Justinian, if someone gets away that you're guarding, you will face the same penalty the escapee would have faced. And he's got multiple prisoners he thinks are gone. So he knows he's going to either be tortured terribly or even executed. So he says, I have no way out. I just need to kill myself. So before he falls on his sword, I want you to think about that, or cuts his own throat, in this no place, no way out place, uh, this horrific moment of darkness, suddenly, I love this, like the earthquake, mercy breaks out across the broken jail. Paul and Silas choose to stay. Okay. Just, everyone just sit with this, please. This is not what we see in 2024 anywhere. Paul and Silas choose to stay in the injustice. What? Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. To the jailer who just tortured him, he says back to the jailer, don't harm yourself. Most people would say, go ahead and kill yourself. You deserve it. Even in the last three plus years, as I have observed, have observed on social media, so many Christians, I see very little mercy left in our so-called movement. I see a lot of winner justice. I don't see a lot of merciful, sovereign, informed grace. I'm sure the jailer is thinking, why in the world did you stay? I mean, I heard what you were singing and I probably he had heard what they had been preaching. 
And he's basically saying, why would you stay here? And not only this, why would you love me like this? Why would you spare my life? Why would you tell me not to hurt myself? And actually, why are you loving me, thus loving my whole family? And here's the wild, mind-bending thing, bleeding, tired, and dirty. Paul and Silas would say, well, Jesus. The jailer called for lights. Russian fell trembling before Paul and Silas, brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Because remember, he's, he's known what they've been saying. Uh, Silas and Paul say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. Okay, uh, that little phrase, believe in the Lord Jesus, is a mini summary of what Paul later writes uh, in Romans 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God has raised you from the dead, you will be saved. This is what he told his torturer, his jailer. That's the gospel. And by the way, if you, again, are a seeker or a skeptic, or you belong to another religion, or you're spiritual or Christian, but not really, you want to understand the Christian faith? Here it is right here. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. What does confess mean, by the way? I just say things and magically they change things? No, no. It's saying, what you believe in your heart, say it out loud. What do you believe on the inside? Say it on the outside. Well, what do you need to believe? What do you need to confess? Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? That is Jesus is king. Jesus is more important than Caesar back then or any system we've got today. And Jesus is who he claims. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only one that can forgive sins. He shares the nature, the name, the holiness, the authority, the power, the majesty, and the eternity of God because he's equal with the Father. When you're declaring Jesus as Lord, you're saying, I believe what you claimed about yourself, and I believe you're in charge. And the next thing you have to confess, believe in your heart and confess, is God raised Jesus from the dead. This is a historical event. This is not myth. Our faith is rooted in actual history. Jesus was crucified under Roman rule. He died. He descended to the dead. He suffered terrible torture. His death was real. Jesus shared the fate of all of those who had died, but this was for a purpose. It's not random violence in some back part of the Roman ancient world. This was heaven's work. This was God's plan to overcome everything that separates us from God. Jesus, of course, overcomes it by not staying dead. Unlike every other person who's ever died, he's the only one who's come back from the other side and told us who is there and what is there. And he didn't stay dead for 15 seconds or see some light on some operating table. He was dead for three days. He physically came back. That's what Paul says you must believe. And it says that the jailer and his household say yes. I love verse 33. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds and immediately he and all his household were baptized. Okay, I can't preach enough of this into the room. Feel the risk of this. The jailer, who's under Roman magistrates, who represents the law, is allowing political prisoners into his house. Like, what? And not only that, the one who was involved in part two of the torture cleans their wounds with water. And Paul and Silas are okay that the guy who did it to them does it back. So he's, he's washing them with water, cleaning them up, and then what's so beautiful is Paul and Silas turn around and baptize him and the whole household with water, which symbolizes their wounds before God have now been made clean. I mean, what gospel is this? 
this is insanity. This, this is not the way the world works, but it's the way our Father's kingdom works. Well, the jailer brought them into the house and then set a meal before them. He was filled with joy. He had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Okay, this, when I was reading this again and again, I, I just was like, I wasn't just perplexed. I think I was overwhelmed. They eat a meal together. They eat a meal together. This is what Jesus does. I've said this a thousand times in our own church community. I'm going to keep saying it. Our unity has nothing to do with us. Our unity is external. Our unity has nothing to do with ethnicity. Our unity has nothing to do with money. Our unity has nothing to do with educational levels. Our, our unity has nothing to do with what I have in common with you. Our, our unity is not actually in what we share in common history. And our unity is not that, no, I have never hurt you before. Our unity is in Jesus. And Jesus brings enemies and friends to tables to eat. Can you imagine, like, I know we're all sitting in a very comfortable church right now, or you're listening on a plane or, or you know, in your car. Listen, can you imagine eating with your enemies with joy? Like, with joy. I mean, that's the gospel. People who hated us and hurt us now are brothers and sisters. Really? Yeah, really. Well, then it turns a little political next. <laughs> when it was daylight, the magistrate sent for the officers, uh, officers to the jailer with this order. Release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave and go in peace. Ah. Then Paul says to the officers, not so fast. They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? Uh, no. Let them come and escort us out. Well, the officers report this to the magistrates. When they heard Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. Big time. So they came to appease them and escort them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. So after Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with brothers and sisters, encouraged them, and then they left. Okay, uh, did you catch it? Look at all the different ways and all the different avenues and methodologies God used to lead people through his son to him. He uses scripture. He uses the power of Jesus' name in miracles. He uses earthquakes and he uses undeserved mercy. He basically, here our language in, uses power, word, and love. Think about the makeup of this church. You've got a former demonized slave, a very successful entrepreneurial non-Jewish woman and her whole family, and now the head of the Roman jail and his family. Those are the three groups that make up the church in Philippi. And, and of course, Paul writes them 11 plus years later with this little letter about joy in suffering called the book of, anyone? Philippians. Now, this is a very amazing passage. It's a very message pass passage. And the truth is, it's easy to read. It's like so many of us, you know, we go and we watch a really epic movie and we're like, wow, that was so awesome to watch. But if you were like, and now you're going to live through it, you're like, no, I don't want to live through any of that. It's just fun to observe. The same here. But not only what do we learn, as we always say around here, what is also the same God that, you know, 
got involved in the earthquake, saying to us. Well, one, really important, how we lose might be more important than how we win. In the end, Paul and Silas used their political rights, but they did not use them quickly. Why? Because they were forgetful? Paul could have at any moment said, we're Roman citizens, stop touching us, and it would have stopped. Why the delay? Because the gospel mattered more than their safety. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, Christian Twitter. Uh-oh, the last five years. What? The gospel mattered more to Paul and Silas. Paul thought about my suffering would allow my enemies to be given eternal life. I don't see a lot of this in North American Christianity these days. Uh, Philippians 1.27, that he wrote 11 years later, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a worthy manner of the gospel of Christ, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for Jesus. They rejoice in their suffering, because not only do they look more like Jesus, but a family of enemies have now become eternal family. So the question for us is, what would you be willing to lose so others could be granted eternal life? Now, don't misapply the text. Does this mean we should never stand up against injustice or just let abuse go? Of course not. Of, of course not. But here's the question I just don't see asked almost anywhere. Do we even consider that Jesus wants to save those that hurt us in the first place? I'm, I'm just trying to point out in this pivotal moment in history, especially within the West, where it is getting harder to be a Christian, and yes, our rights are being ebbed away, and sure, of course we need to stand, but at the end of the day, what matters more to you? Your safety, your politics, or your enemy becoming your brother and sister for eternity? The great challenge for us is to say, Lord Jesus, um, make me like Jesus for real. Here's the second thing. Not just, oh, that's a good observational point. Like, really matters. I said this in this series already. I feel um, compelled to say it again. Worship is still a weapon. Paul and Silas show us that in amazing times, good times, boring times, bad times, times of injustice and terrible times, we as Christians must worship. We must worship regardless of circumstance. Because when we worship, we encounter Him. Worship is beyond what is comfortable or what I like or when it's done easily. Worship is sacrifice. Remember, when we worship, we're moved to forgive. When we really worship, we can be healed. When we really worship, faith is confirmed. The very presence of God walks into prisons. And in the end, other people will listen. They might actually see a genuine difference. Don't jump from service to service or worship event to worship event or song to song on Apple Music and actually miss it. We worship God because He deserves it. We, we worship so we're grounded. We worship because our relationship with God brings joy into a world that's full of demonized, slave-owning injustice. 
We worship because real worship goes beyond pleasure and pain that mark our lives. Worship is a weapon because it heals wounds and it allows us to actually see the grand picture. Worship lets you encounter the one who's in control. So in other words, don't jump from event to event because you like the events. And on the opposite, make sure that your environments in environments where worship is central because it's game-changing. It's life-changing. It's what we're going to do in some variation for eternity. <sighs> Enemy to friends. A lot to pray about there. Making worship a discipline because that's where hope is found. But lastly, uh, I want to say this. Are you the jailer? Uh, if you are, by the way, uh, demonized today, uh, Jesus can set you free. Uh, he's, he's that powerful. If you're a very successful person uh, watching me or you hear my voice, and you're doing very, very well, like Lydia, and you've learned that money and travel and access and sexual experience or whatever isn't giving ultimate purpose and hope, Jesus is ready, ready to meet you like he did Lydia. But interestingly, a few weeks ago when I was preparing the sermon, I was doing it in a local library. And as I was in the middle of this just very normal local library on a cold, uh, cold winter day, there was suddenly this moment that happened. Uh, I would say the environment spiritually shifted. And as I was praying over the sermon, this charge came to me very strongly by the Spirit. And um, I, I knew it was the Lord. I said, I said, what do you, what's going on? <laughs> and clear as day, he said, John, speak to those that are the jailers. I went, what? I said, Lord, what do you mean? And what came next actually was very unexpected for me, not within how I was processing he says, speak to those that think there's no way out. Speak to those that are struggling with and flirting with suicidal ideation. With those who think mercy should not be extended to them, or actually they have no value. So I'm just going to say to you very carefully, what you're going through is complex and difficult. I don't pretend to understand it, so I'm not going to say, oh, I understand, because I don't understand some of it. Do I, do I want to encourage you to get help and use 1-800 numbers and helplines? Yes. Do, do I need you to talk in community with safe people? Of course. But I, I want to say, I think prompted by the Spirit, that actually Jesus himself wants to come meet with some of you and walk into this environment where you are like the jailer and there is no way out. And you're like, it's done. There's only darkness. And... I think he's going to walk into your life and bring profound mercy, a reversed earthquake, where like the jailer, you're going to hear, don't harm yourself. And then like the jailer, there's going to be light suddenly that's not there. And then like the jailer, you're going to run and say, what? And someone's going to say, do not harm yourself. And then in that moment, the good news is going to be given to you. The Lord is with you right now. Prepare to meet him. Lord Jesus, a few things. For those who are the jailers among us, and lots of people wouldn't know who they are because they keep things together so well on the surface. Uh, I just, I would pray, literally that would begin right now. 
that an earthquake of mercy would show up in their life in Jesus' name. Light would walk in a dark prison. They'd hear, do not harm yourself, and then they would believe on the Lord Jesus or continue to believe on him and be rescued in Jesus' name. And if you're hearing me preach right now and you're, you're, that's not your story, could you just say amen to that? Stand in the gap for those people right now. Lord, also I pray for worship to grow in our church, even after I finish preaching in certain environments, that it would be genuine and real. I also pray also at this moment that you would give us a love for enemies that makes no sense. And I just pray that this worship prayer thing would undo bitterness and begin to bring healing across our church in a way we just can't articulate. Uh, move this passage from history to reality in our moment. We pray this in the name of God, the Father who called us, in the name of Jesus who sets people free, in the name of the Holy Spirit who is light in our darkness. We pray this in, in of course, the, that name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that follow button to be notified when another episode releases. We hope you enjoyed what you heard. God bless you.